Welcome to Lazzaletzion, and it's, to be honest, with uh, somewhat mixed feelings, of course, that I welcome everybody here this evening. We're very uh, honoured to be joined by distinguished rabbinim, particularly Rabbi Lord Sachs, Rabbi Mian Tabori, and other distinguished colleagues, also by members of Lazzaletzion and uh, neighbouring communities, and many people who have fond and admirable memories of Moreno Harav Binyamin Yehuda Ben Harav Tzvi, Alapa Shalom, that's uh, one of our earliest rabbinic leaders in this uh, community. Uh, I'm in a little of a strange position speaking this evening, in the sense that I never knew Rav Tabori as the Rav of Kilat Aleksion, for obvious reasons, uh, so, but I did of course know Rav Tabori from the, uh, from the Gush days, that's, and in that sense, I've known Rav Tabori for well over, uh, well over 30 years. That's, um, of course, his passing at the beginning of uh, Elul that's, uh, took us all a little bit by surprise, even though that we'd known that Rav Tabori was very ill and suffering in Ahava for many years. That's, and we extend our condolences to Rav Aviad, Moreno Harav, Ben Moreno Harav, that's, and we hope that you'll take those uh, condolences back with you, back to uh, Alon Schlut, uh, to your mother and to the rest of your family, to your sister and uh, the grandchildren. That's, and Riviki uh, Latalitsion does join with you in your sorrow at this time. That's Rav Lichtenstein's Ikron Olivracha was always keen to point out in Parshat Noach that uh, Noach was given uh, two instructions. That's uh, before the Mabul, Noach was told, He was told to uh, come into the Teva, take all his family, and escape from the uh, corruption and from what was going on around, and go into a safe environment. But he didn't stop there, because at the end of the Mabul, Noach was also told, Leave the Teva, go out of the uh, Ark and rebuild the world. And Rav Lichtenstein was often keen to point out that uh, we have uh, dual responsibilities. We have a responsibility to closet ourselves in the world of Torah, to uh, put ourselves into a secure environment, almost hermetically sealed, immersing ourselves in the world of Torah. But then at a certain stage, we also have to go out and promote that Torah and share that Torah with others. And I think that's a very apt way of describing Rav Tabori, Zichron Olivracha, that uh, he was a person who was essentially a man of the yeshiva in so many ways. That was his home, and yet repeatedly he went beyond the confines of the Kotle Beit HaMedrash, went on a number of uh, missions of Shrichut uh, around the world, and the final one that he uh, undertook, really just before he became ill, was his Shrichut here to London, and his role as Rav of Kilat Aleksion, as well as being a Marvitz Torah here in, uh, here in London. And I want to share with you just uh, three thoughts before we pass on to our main Maspidim this evening. But I want to share with you just three thoughts about the uniqueness of Rav Tavori and what uh, stands out about him in my mind. The first is that he was always immensely clear when he taught Torah. Now, it shouldn't really be such a chidush, but uh, sometimes it is. That, uh, I was never actually in Rav Tavori's Shir Yomi at Gush, but I had many, many shiurim from him at uh, Shabbat afternoons and Motzei Shabbatot, when the various ramim would give shiurim. That, and whether you were in Shir Aleph or whether you were in the Kolel, you always came out knowing more than you went in knowing and knowing what you'd learnt. That wasn't always the case. Sometimes you'll listen to a shir and it must be very good, and uh, you're convinced it was, uh, it was brilliant, but you're not quite sure exactly what you got out of it. And that was never the case with Rav Tabori. Whatever level you were on, whether in the yeshiva, or I'm sure in the communities as well, that's when he gave a shir, it was clear, it was well-structured, and you knew at the end what, uh, what you'd come out with and uh, what the new material you'd learnt. So that's the first thing that uh, I want to share with you about Rav Tabori. The second is that the... Uh, the impact that he had on Northwest London jury in the short time that he was here. Because really he was quite a, a unique phenomena here in London. Baruch Hashem London is uh, blessed with many Talmidei Chachamim, 
But uh, it was a novelty to have uh, Talmud Chacham with his background, his background in the Gush, that's at Yeshiva University, as a Talmud of Rav Soloveitchik, as a Ram in a Hesli Yeshiva, and uh, all such uh, things. And people had not previously been experienced to something like this. There was sort of a, a common perception that oh, Hesli Yeshiva, they, they spend their time learning Rav Cook. And uh, that's sort of the extent of uh, the Talmud Torah that they can uh, produce. What Rav Tavori demonstrated to the wider Kehillah was really that uh, there was great depth of Torah, great breadth of Torah, great skill in teaching Torah, and that the uh, modern Orthodox world, the YU world, the Shibat Hesda world, was able to produce outstanding Talmudei Chachamim. And I know that uh, many people came to hear Rav Tavori Shurim even though that uh, they would previously have thought of associating with themselves with uh, Torah from, uh, from those backgrounds. Nevertheless, it was just uh, clear to them when, uh, when he spoke and when he gave a share and when he gave a Devar Torah that uh, he was a man of, uh, uh, of great erudition and a very, very distinguished uh, Talmud Chacham. And what he brought to London in a way that hadn't previously been experienced by our Kilot was uh, an exposure to the to the Torah and the teachings, the Londus in particular of Rav, Tabor, uh, of Rav Soloveitchik and uh, the halachic positions of Rav Soloveitchik and that Masorah as well, and that was uh, you know really I think vital and important contribution that uh, Rav Tabori made to the Torah scene here in London. And then the third observation about him, of course, is the credibility that he gave to Kilat Alitzion. When he came, Kilat Alitzion was a fledgling uh, community. It was a brave and daring move of the community to bring over uh, Rosh Hashiba from Eretz Yisrael to lead the community for a year. Made a very powerful statement about what this community wanted, uh, wanted to be. And if they'd chosen the wrong person, then it could have uh, really caused our community to lose all, uh, all credibility. What they did was they brought over somebody of outstanding midot, uh, outstanding personality, outstanding Torah, and uh, you know I'm still often told by people that uh, after Bori's day, you know that uh, you know shiurim, that uh, you know people would be you know flocking to hear his uh, shiurim, packing out the room. We heard uh, recently about you know Shavuot night how uh, Rav Tabori would just sit there and uh, learn Rambam and everybody would just want to sit there and listen to him learning and teaching, uh, teaching the Rambam. I have to say that when I was first appointed as the Rav of uh, Kilat Alexion, I was a little bit nervous about stepping into uh, his shoes. That's, uh, Rav Tabori was an outstanding first-rate uh, Talmud Chacham. That's what the uh, community had, uh, had been used to and it's certainly following his footsteps uh, made me very nervous about uh, this position. Uh, so, so as I say, we're very, very honoured and privileged that uh, Rabbi Tabori is here from Israel, that uh, Rabbi Sachs is uh, going to address us as well this evening. We're also uh, privileged that uh, Bogrim of the Gush are with us this evening, as well as Talmudim of uh, Rav Aviyad from Eretz Hatzvi, and uh, wider members of the community as well. And uh, before we pass on to our guest speakers this evening, I'd like to call on the chairman of Akihila, Elliot Kay, to uh, also share some Divrei Hesped about Rav Tabori. friends. I first encountered Rav Binyamin Tabori through his Torah. During the two years that our dear friend Rav Aviad led this community in London as our founding Rav, he would very often quote his father. Those two years were ones of tremendous growth and excitement in Al-Aid But following Rav Aviad's return to Israel, the next year was a difficult one for al Kahila. With no Rav and questions around long-term viability, Al-Aid really faced an existential threat. And then, in the spring of 2007, Rav Aviad suggested that his father might be persuaded to come to London for a short period as the Rav of Al-Aid We knew that Rav Tabori had been a senior Rav in Gush for many years, and we also knew that he'd been on several other shlichiot, including as Rosh Kalal of Torah We were very keen to meet him, 
So we agreed that he would come as a scholar in residence for Shavuot with a view to potentially staying in the longer term the following year. When he came, before Yom's have started, a few of us, as many of us are in the room now, met with Rav Tabori. And I have an unbelievably clear recollection of that meeting. He sat there and he said, you know, I'm just a mugged That's all I do. I just teach. I'm not a community rabbi. I can't work. I remember this phrase, I can't work a room. I don't do the touchy-feely stuff. That was another thing that he said. So we were a bit nervous. Um, but by the end of, I think it was a three-day onto for that year, we were falling over ourselves to welcome him. Firstly, and obviously, the quality of Rav Tabori Shirin was outstanding. Not just in terms of content, but his teaching style was completely captivating. But also, he knew how to work a room. Going around the Kiddush, over meals, effortlessly, engagingly, we absolutely knew we had to have Rav Tabori uh, to come to Aletzion. And so began an intensive period of fundraising and preparations. We needed to find a significant amount of money uh, for a community of our size. And we did, as a result of the generosity of many of our members, a very generous donation from the Tatnak Family Trust, and it's lovely to see Corin and David with us here this evening, and a critical contribution from the United Synagogue too. We also entered into partnerships with LSJS and with Emmanuel College for Rav Tabori to teach there. And we needed to find a house. So we took a lease on 85 Hillview Gardens, Harnoff, as the Tabori's sweetly refer to it, mm-hmm. uh, a house that my wife Susie, amongst others, helped get out in readiness for their arrival, which was the really beginning of a strong friendship between our families. And so shortly before Rosh Hashanah, Tafshin, Samachet, Rav Tabori and Naomi arrived in London. And as Rabbi Rosalar just mentioned, I genuinely, I don't think it's hyperbolic at all to describe Rav Tabori's effect on Aleksion and indeed on the wider Northwest London Torah community as transformational. For Aleksion, Rav Tabori's presence totally regalvanized our community, which grew exponentially under his leadership. His shirim attracted hundreds of new faces into Aleksion, eager to hear his Torah. He really put us on the map. And for the wider community, again, as Rabbi Rosalar just mentioned, it really was the first exposure to many to a modern Orthodox world-class Talmud Chacham. I will never forget one Shabbos afternoon when Rav Tabori was giving his Shabbat afternoon shir, two Hasidim came in. And at the end, one said to the other, you know what? He said, he's a long dish Even with a Sikhi pastor will come. Rav Tabori launched the Al Eitzion Gemarashir, still going strong 12 years later, now under the leadership of M.D. Spitzer, who wrote a beautiful tribute in our latest Al Eitzion magazine, Degel. Thank you, M.D., if you haven't read it, there are several copies around. Rav Tabori Shabbat afternoon shir regularly attracted 50, 60 attendees, and he held the entire room captivated. His pre-shachar at Minchas Chilachshir in his own house on a Shabbos morning brought many people early for coffee and cake. And his Sunday morning shirim on Shittim of various Achronim again brought in people from all over London. But it wasn't just his shirim. <coughs> his love of Torah was completely infectious. It made everyone around him want to learn more, which is a truly extraordinary gift for an educator. And as I said, he just wasn't, he wasn't just a Maggid Shir. Rav Binyamin and Naomi threw themselves wholeheartedly into the ongoing project to grow and develop our community. They hosted events in their home, participated in all our social activities, pushing us to do more, and were a magnet attracting people into our community. And he wasn't just a huge Talmud Chachamayim. He had a gloriously warm smile, which matched his incredibly warm personality. He and Naomi connected with so many people in our community, on so many different levels, because he was very approachable. He was so wise, worldly wise. You could have an equally comfortable discussion about the latest World Series in baseball as you could learning a kasha of the Ketosa of Afterbury. There are so many anecdotes about his extraordinary knowledge. One sticks in my mind was one of, the, one of those Sunday mornings that I just mentioned. We were due to learn a tshuva of the Ketav Sofer. I can't remember what it was about, but we got into the room with our coffee and croissant ready. And Rav Tabori gave a short opening about the context of the tshuva that we were about to discuss. And he picked up the handout that had been prepared. We all had a copy in front of us. And he looked at it and he realised that they'd photocopied the wrong tshuva. So he paused for about 20 seconds. And then gave an entire share on the tshuva that was in front of us. Quoting Gemara's Rosh Hashanah completely Baal Peh. 
you hear stories, or you read stories sometimes, about Gedolim and Old that could do that. But we had the schutz of having Rav Tabori in our community. And what is most extraordinary to me is that he and Naomi were in fact only in London for 10 months, less than a year. And yet their impact was so immense that it reverberates right here and now. We're sitting in this big midrash where Rav Tabori's Torah continues to be learned just as he would want. The Shabbat after Rav Tabori's Petira, I was davening on Friday night with my dear friend and former co-trustee of Aletzi on Robbie Staffler. It was also lovely to have you back here this evening. And we were commenting to each other how hardly a moment goes by without recalling something that Rav Tabori taught us. There we were at Dublin Friday night, and we were just about to get to Lechad and remember the share that he gave about why Lechad is basically about Yerushalayim, not about Shabbat at all. And then, just before the Amida Vashamru, and how he gave, again, a whole halacha share about why that is or is not a hefseik in tefillah. His Torah was incredible, and as I said, he was here for such a short period of time. Rav Tabori recognised that learning Torah is not just an intellectual pursuit, however cute a hakir he could come up with. Torah is also immensely spiritual. I vividly recall his share on the sugi that discusses that the Bet Mikdash was destroyed because people didn't say Birkat Torah. Rav Tabori loved singing, and singing with Rav Tabori was an equally uplifting and powerful experience. In his last few years, as his body was destroyed by this horrible and cruel disease, Many people would come and learn next to his bed. <coughs> when we came, I used to come and sing. And I always enjoyed his reaction, however slight, to the nagunim that we sang. Susie and I and our children would always look forward to visiting the Taboris at the home in El Anshvut. And we would often visit on Sukkot. On Sukkot, one of the Hashanah we say starts with the words, Om Ani my people are a war. It's a particular favourite of Rav Tabori's. He taught me a tune to it when he could still sing, a very haunting melody that I'd never heard before. Um, and the words of that Hoshana are incredibly powerful. And reflecting over the last few days, reading them again, to me they speak a lot about Rav Tabori. <coughs> the based in Shamala asks Israel, are you steadfast in your faith as a wall? Or are you influenced by every alien culture like a door swinging on its hinges this way and that? Israel responds, Om Anichoma, I am a wall, strong and stalwart in my love for the Ribbon Despite his unbearable affliction, Rav Tabori remained saturated in his Ahavat Hashem throughout his life. The next words, Barak Chama, brilliant as the sun. Rav Tabori's Torah has lit and will continue to light up the lives of thousands of Talmudim not just here in Aletzion, but throughout the entire world. Chavuka Udvuka Bach. She hugs and cleaves to you. For me, those words totally sum up Rav Tabori's love of Torah and his connection with Hashem. Everyone at Aletzion, whether or not they were part of the community 12 years ago, owes a huge debt of gratitude to Rav Tabori. Many of us who are inspired by him continue to learn his Torah. And in fact, his safer will be available outside afterwards for anyone who would like to acquire it. There are thousands of opportunities to listen to his shirim online. So really, as MD mentioned at the end of his beautiful tribute in Degel, we can still learn from Rav Tabori today. All of us at Aletzion wish Naomi, Rav Aviad, Adina and their families long life and hope that you can take comfort from the incredible inspiration that Rav Tabori was and continues to be to all of us here in London. He's a Now it's me great pleasure to ask Rabbi Sachs. Gershut, Vod Maradatra, Rabbi Roslar, Shachentov, Rabbi Ginsburg. Elliot, thank you for those moving and beautiful words. And of course, very especially Rabbi Aviad who founded this minute, who brought your father, Zichron, Zechet Tzadik to be in our midst, and whom Hashem has given a double portion of the beauty of spirit that he had and that he radiated and that shines through you. It's a privilege to have you in our midst and to say how much we feel for you and we ask Hashem 
to comfort you and all the family. Friends, in thinking about Rav Tabori's Zetzal, the first thing that comes to mind is this powerful statement that we make every single day in the very first Kaddish we say. The first Kaddish we say is Kaddish de Rabbanan. The first thing we ask Hashem for is teachers to inspire us. And what is so powerful about that prayer is that we pray that Hashem should give them Chena Vachista Varachan. Before any intellectual attributes come the moral attributes of compassion and kindness and understanding and sensitivity. The Torah for which we pray is a Torah Chesed. That is the most powerful impact your father Zetzal made on me and I think all who knew him. That this was a man of Midot, a man of extraordinarily powerful ability to connect with people, to draw them, and that he was an answer to our prayer. And of course, Chazal say, and it's Rashid Vili of if the presence of a tzaddik in a town, in a city, makes a difference. And as long as he was here, we felt the difference. There was something different in the air. We have an Adam Gadol, we have a great man in our midst. And therefore, his absence, we all feel bereaved. Rav Aviad, I thought the only thing I could say to do justice to what your late father inspired in me is to repeat a Torah that came to mind as soon as I was asked to speak on this occasion. And I wondered why that piece of Torah that I never said before and I've never said since. And I went and looked at my notes and I discovered that I wrote that while he was here, inspired by his presence. So if I may, I would just like to share with you the Torah that he inspired in me. And it begins with an extraordinary statement of Chazal. We know that the world has not dealt, I mean the non-Jewish world has not dealt kindly with rabbinic Judaism. Somehow or other, people have compared it with the great inspiration of the prophets, and they said, here the rabbis came and took ethics and turned it into law, turned soaring visions and turned them into prosaic detail, took high ideals and focused on minutiae. And Chazal knew that this was wrong. And they said something extraordinary. It's a Gemara in Baba Basra, which says, Chacham Adif Minavi. Not only when prophecy ceased did Judaism keep its sages, but, said the rabbis, the sages were in their way even greater than the prophets. And I never saw a real explanation of it. The Gevara gives a, a, a proof text, but it's a, a strange proof text. V'navi levav chokhmah. Misreading v'navi, which means let us get, and read it as prophet. A prophet needs the heart of a sage, therefore his stage is greater than the prophet. Clearly Chazal meant more than just basing it on that pasuk, reading that pasuk, or at least reading it agadically, what did they mean? And I want to give you three examples where Chazal solved a problem that even the Nevi'im were not able to solve. Here it is, the first problem, peace. There have never been more references on peace than those given by the prophets. They are the world's oldest statements of peace. They're even written near the United Nations building in New York. They will beat their, what is it, they'll beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Good! It's good to know the United Nations knows what it hasn't yet achieved. Um, I remember once speaking in the United Nations with, with, Rav, with Rav Lau. And Rav Lau quoted the Pasuk from nine chapters later on 
about the lamb dwelling with the wolf. He said, it never happened yet, except once. He said, when did the lamb dwell with the wolf? On Noah's ark. Why did the lamb dwell with the wolf in Noah's ark? Because they knew if they didn't live together, they'd drown. So that was his message to the United Nations. Either we learn to live together or we will all drown. It's a beautiful thing. Now the wonderful thing about the prophets is that their vision, I mean, uh, Michael Friedman, the uh, historian of of law at uh, King's College London, wrote a book called The Invention of Peace, and he says war is as old as humankind, peace is a modern invention, and he dates it to the 1790s or 1780s, and Immanuel Kant's essay on perpetual peace. Well, Isaiah's prophecy was 8th century BC, a little bit before Immanuel Kant. So the prophets were the first people to speak of peace as an ideal. It's an extraordinary thing. But along come Chazal and say, the famous uh, Mishnah in Gitin, that Mishum Darche Shalom, for the sake of peace, what do we do? Mepharnasin Aniyei Akum Im Aniyei Israel. We give support to the poor of the non-Jewish population as well as the Jewish population. Mishum darchei shalom. Mavakrim chole akum im chole Israel. When you're doing hospital visiting, you visit non-Jews as well as Jews. When somebody can't afford a burial, we bury the poor of the heathens as well as the poor of Israel. All of these institutions, the sages instituted for the sake of peace. What is the difference between Isaiah's vision of peace and the sages' vision of peace? Isaiah's vision of peace is soaring, it's magnificent, but it is entirely utopian. It didn't happen yet, and it may not happen for a while yet. I'm not sure what the results of the next election will be, who knows? But I, I, I'm not expecting peace suddenly to break out. But the sages came along and instituted well ahead of the concept of a multicultural society an actual program for good community relations in which you made sure that non-Jews as well as Jews benefited from all the social services and the sense of, of community spirit that Jews had. This is an astounding, innovative program. But what does it do? It takes a high ideal and makes it real on the ground. It's a completely different sensibility to the prophets. But it turns a vision into a reality. It turns an aspiration into an actual social circumstance. That is how the sages dealt with the issue of peace. Do you know what else they instituted? Mishum Darche Shalom? Who's a gabba here? What do we say in Gabba? You call a Kohen Rishan and a lady Shani in Yisrael Shemeshi, Mishum Darche Shalom. What is the issue there? Let me tell you, historically, what is the issue there? The tension between the priesthood in Jerusalem and the rest of the Jewish people was immense. We have the entire Sadducee Pharisee split is essentially the tzedokim, well, the b'nai tzedok, the people are, are around the Sadducees. Tzedok was the great priestly family. The, one of the biggest splits of the lot in Jewish history around that period, uh, the first century BCE and the first century CE, was between the tzedokim and the purushim. The second one was between the priesthood in Jerusalem and the Dead Sea Scrolls or originators, the Qumran sect, who clearly were um, were re- escaping from Jerusalem because of the what they saw as the corruption of the priesthood. It would have been so easy for the sages to say, "There's no temple, there's no sacrifices. We don't need priests anymore." What did they do instead? They said, "No." We still have such a thing as Kuhuna, and we still honor a Kohen by calling him first to Kriyata Torah. Now, if that is not a piece of practical rabbinics, I don't know what is. That's a beautiful piece of conflict resolution. Let us honor the Kohanim 
realizing what they have lost. They've lost their whole world, their whole function. Let us not feel they have lost their honor. And for the sages to say that, the sages who saw themselves as heirs of the Purushim, not of the Tzadokim, was an extraordinary thing to do. So that's number one. They took peace and turned it from an aspiration to a reality. Secondly, um, rebuke. What is the command of telling somebody off? I say this in the light of various protesters, climate changes, and so on and so forth. Listen carefully to what the prophet Ezekiel reports in chapter 2. God tells the prophet Ezekiel, Son of man, I am sending you to the uh, Israelites, a rebellious nation. They have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have revolted against me to this very day. The people I am sending you to, says Hashem to Yehezkel, are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what Hashem says. Uben in Yishmu, in Yechul, whether they listen or they refuse to listen, viadu shenavi hayabekirban. Let them know that there was a prophet in their midst. You know, this is what Hashem said to Yechezkel. It's serious. I don't call this virtue signaling. But it can come close. You say your thing, and it doesn't matter whether they listen or you don't listen. You, at any rate, have saved your own soul. That is what Hashem says to Yechezkel. When Chazal came along and looked at that same mitzvah, which they applied to everyone, not just Nevi'im, what did they say in Bama Menziah? I feel You have to rebuke even a hundred times. It's not enough to say it once, and whether they listen or they don't listen, they know they had a prophet in their midst. The Gemara in... Uh, in, um, in um, in uh, where is it uh, in Arachin says ad um, nazifa or ad until they actually insult you or until they hit you. So on the one hand, you've got to keep going, you've got to keep wrestling with people until they listen, and at the same time, says the Gemara in Yevamos. Just as it's a mitzvah to say something that will be listened to, so it is a mitzvah not to say something that won't be listened to. It is the same concept of rebuke, but illuminated completely differently from a prophetic point of view and from a rabbinic point of view. The prophetic point of view is you make a statement. Let it be on record. You were warned. But the rabbinic view is, will I be effective or not? If not, even do it. If they won't listen, you may make things worse. Because they were unintentional, now they'll know there's any. So if you're going to make it worse, don't say anything. But if they might just listen, then then you have to listen even a hundred times. And that, I think, is, again, taking something that's a very profound moral ideal in the prophets and saying, no, let's bring it down to earth and make a difference to people's lives. And finally, the biggest issue for me in the whole of tonight is this completely split view that we have it exists all the way through tonight of what constitutes Avodat Hashem. For the Kohen, it's absolutely clear. Avodat Hashem is offering a sacrifice according to extremely precisely configured rules. And those rules never change. Said Tomit Shel Boket, Tomit Shel those things never change. The whole institution of Musaf, all the rest. <coughs> the Nevi'im serve Hashem by prayer. They speak to Him directly. And the words constantly change depending on the circumstance. 
The Nevi'im, by and large, do not offer sacrifices unless they're making a point like Eliyahu Hanavi on Har Kamel. They don't serve Hashem that way. And this led to a profound difference of understanding among Chazal, it's Gemarim Brothers, and it is repeated in the Middle Ages between the Rambam and Ramban as to what part of Torah Kanin is it a substitute for sacrifices? Or is it like in the tradition of the Avod, Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Tfilat Chana, all the rest of it? The Rambam holds it's in the prophetic tradition. The Ramban holds that Tfilah is a substitute for sacrifice. And the Gemara brings both views in Brochus Dachavah. There's something that I wrote in my introduction to the Siddur, commentary to the Siddur which I think is extraordinary. Chazal solved the whole problem in the world's most simple way. They established that for every tefillah except ma'ariv, we should say a prayer twice, once individually and silently, and a second time collectively out loud by the Shriyat Zibur. When we say a prayer silently and individually, we are acting, says the Gemara, in the tradition of Chana, in, uh, the, in the prayer that she utters in the Haftarah, we say on the first day of Rosh Hashanah. We are saying a prophetic prayer, and that is why any tefillah belachash can contain individual requests, which we can innovate within the context of that particular bracha. And the tefillah of Tzibur is... Um, a substitute for sacrifice, and since there was no korban in the evening, we have no repetition of the Amidah in Marav. The sages simply said, we're going to pray twice, once as Nevi'im and once as Kana. And in that single act, they united a, a conceptual and experiential split that had existed throughout the biblical age. And it is quite remarkable, the genius with which they did so. I think I've given you three examples of how the sages solved problems that remain problems throughout the prophetic age for the prophets. They had the greatest of ideals, but the sages brought those ideals and made them real in the lives of jury for the last 2,000 years. Rav Tabori was that just such a man. He was able to bring different traditions together. He was able to bring high ideals and make them real in people's lives. <coughs> and that is why while he was here, I suddenly understood the meaning of that phrase. Adif Chacham Inavi. A sage can be greater than a prophet. We had a great man in our midst. We learned so much from him. And we are simply committed, each one of us who had the privilege of knowing him, to remain inspired by his memory, the greater heights and depths in our learning, and hopefully in our lives. We say to you, Aviad, may you continue, and all the members of the family, to live all the great midot, that he gave you. May he May may his memory endure as a blessing. Amen. and friends. I look around this room and I, uh, a lot of memories come back to me from the beginning of Ali Tzion. Quite emotional being here uh, at, this, at this time. When I uh, gave uh, the Hespeh for my Abba uh, that morning when I had to write the Hespeh, I uh, had so many thoughts in my mind and I called my sister and my mother and I asked them, if they would like me to say anything on their behalf. 
And they both said separately, make sure that you do one thing, make sure that you do, that you mention in your hespay, you say thank you to, uh, to, to people that deserve thanks. Hakarata tov, recognizing the good and, and thanking people was a very important part in Abba's life. So please make sure you do that. I, that's why I began my father's hespay, and just to, just to mention that my, my second, uh, um, the second point of my hespay was about how my Abba was so connected to Tabechachamim all over the world. And in the week of the Shiva, as I was going through my father's books, finding some amazing uh, letters another time for that, I found my father's hespay for his father. And in it, it started Hakaratatov. And the second item was my grandfather's Keshe Tadamechacham. So here, also this evening, I would like to begin with Hakaratatov of saying thank you to all that are here tonight, all the people that the past few weeks have written to us, called us, visited us. We have been very blessed. We have been blessed with so many friends that have surrounded us and given us nechama and support in these very difficult uh, um, weeks. When I had to decide at the Hespade what to do at the Hespade, what to speak about, I, uh, I reflected on what my Abba liked to do. My Abba was an amazing storyteller. Every time he gave a shear, it always connected to a story. And even when my Abba was sick for many years, there were two times in his years of sickness where he, where he couldn't talk, where he somehow did communicate to us. And in both cases, it was all about communicating us a story. The first time was when my son Yair was bar mitzvah, and my father couldn't speak anymore. But that was one of the only moments and times of his sickness that we were able somehow to connect a, uh, something to his, to his throat to allow him to, to, to speak. And here we were at the bar mitzvah, sitting around the wheelchair, and there was quiet and silence in the bar mitzvah. And everyone was waiting to hear what my father was about to say because he hadn't spoken for a year or two. And here he is, struggling with every word. And we were all waiting, what is he going to tell us? And of course, it was a funny story about Yair going to Gan here in near Israel when he was here in London. My father came to visit and took, and that's what he wanted to tell us, a funny story about Yair. And then, around the same time, Luchmastin uh, was Nifter, and again, my father used it for the second time. He used this machshir to somehow speak. And again, what did he tell us? He told the stories about Luchmastin. When my father... Uh, um, was asked to write a hespe from Lichtenstein, he couldn't speak anymore. But what he did was he, he, he moved his lips and he used to blink with his eyes and we used to go through the olive base with him, olive, bed, gimel, stop, or ABC, stop. And we used to write down what he told us. And when I read his hespe at the Shloshim of Lichtenstein, I was the only hespe that my father gave, which was only stories about Lichtenstein. Everyone was speaking about personality, and I just give over stories of Lichtenstein that my father knew. So I'm going to also share a few stories with, uh, with all of you tonight about my father, and, and just to remind us of the, of the special personality of my father. First of all, it may, be, it may be obvious to you, it's obvious to me that my father really was a, a real Tamil Chacham. When I was a kid growing up, I thought that all Rabbanim are such great Tamil Chachamim like my Abba. And it took me years to understand that he really was very special. Uh, I tell people that when I was a kid, learning with my Abba, I once came to my Abba and I said to him, Abba, you know, I never learned Baba Batra. I missed Baba Batra. I was in the army for Baba Batra. I never learned Baba Batra. I was very embarrassed. Abba, we have some Baba Batra. So Abba said, fine. So we sat down on the Baba Batra, and there was only one Gemara on the table. I had the Gemara, and my father didn't have the Gemara in front of him, and he was reading the Gemara. He was reading Chazgat Abatim. He was Ramesh reading the Gemara, and I was sitting with the Gemara, and he was reading the Gemara. And, and I was following in the Gemara with him, and then he stops and he starts, wait a second, he says, there's a very important Tosfot here. And he goes, third line from the top, fourth <laughs> letter, fourth word, read. 
And, and that's how I grew up. That was normal uh, for me, that, that you learn about Bacha with one Gemara uh, between two people and only one is actually reading without a Gemara. <laughs> I tell this story quite often because it really uh, was a story that shook me up very much for many years. When my father was sick the first time, he was very sick in hospital. This was uh, 20 years ago, when, right after Deborah and I got married. And, and we went to visit him in the hospital, and he was really not doing so well. He was in ICU. And an older woman came over to us, woman came over to us on Shabbat, and asked Deborah and myself if we would say to Hillem because her husband's dying. We sat through the whole Shabbat, and this gentleman passed away on Shabbat. The lady turns to me and says to me, um, please make sure, right as Shabbat comes out, if you could come, please say Havdalah for me. And I thought to myself, trick question. Onein, Shabbos, Havdalah, I remember something. <coughs> Wasn't so sure, no sfarim, no one to ask. The only person I can only ask in this world is my father. Although I used to, I used to, I used to do this all the time. I always ask my father everything. And I used to want to show off to my students how my father knows everything. And I used to, he didn't even know, I used to sometimes, in the middle of shir, when I had a kasha in, in, in the toast floor or something, I used to phone my father in shir and put on loudspeaker without telling him that he's on loudspeaker. And I'd say, Abba, we're in, we're in Babasra, Dafil, Amagimel, Tosfut, Divinus. Can you explain? And my father would just on the, on the, on the, on the phone, just throw out some Rishonim and Achronim and explain the Sugya on the spot. I just wanted to impress the guys. I wanted them to show, to see, that they should see how a person can know Torah that way. Anyway, I go to my father. He's in ICU. I said, Abba, Abba, what should I do? I don't know what to ask. I started crying. Abba, I have a Shaila here. Should I say Abdullah? Should I not say Abdullah? And my father suddenly opens his eyes. Looks at me and says, Bachok Rabbin Simcha and Maran Rotenbrook in the Rosh Simon Brachas Parag Bet and shut his eyes. And when I reminded him of that, he never remembered it. I mentioned at the Leviathan of my father's great memory of Torah, how he knew Torah. I, I told the story how, as a young boy, he learned at the age of 17 by Rabbi Aaron Soloveitchik in NYU. And I mentioned how my father told me, told me at the end of the year, Rabbi Aaron Soloveitchik turned to the shir and said he wasn't very happy the way they were learning that year. And he decided that at the end of the year, they're getting a bechina on the entire masechet that they were learning that year. My father went over to Rabbi Aaron and said, Rabbi Aaron, I have so much university work. I don't think I can do bechina on everything. But you should know that whatever you taught me, your chidushi that you taught me this year, I will remember for the rest of my life. I don't need to do Bechina on it. Rabbi Aaron said, okay, you're a potter. You don't have to do the Bechina. My <coughs> father told me about 30, 40 years later, he bumped into Rabbi Aaron Zolovechik in Yerushalayim, who turned to him in the street and said, ah, oh, Binyamin, you remember what you told me? So tell me, Sugyan, Gittin, Daf, whatever, what did I say on that month? And my father on the spot said the entire Mahalach that he heard 30 years before. And I can prove it that because one year in Mishnah Eretz Tzvi, we asked my father to come <coughs> give a shir on learning Shomrim, but Mitziah, and we asked my father to give a shir. My father came, gave a shir. No one understood it, but he gave a shir. <laughs> the shir. At the end of the shir, he said, "I heard this shir from Rabbi Aaron Soloveitchik in 1961." My father never wrote it down. It was never, he, my father didn't take notes like that. It wasn't written down. And he said, and that was Rabbi Aaron Soloveitchik's our mitzvah to Russia, that he delivered to us in 1961. I turned to my students and said to them, how many of you in 40 years from now are going to repeat that, what you just heard, without writing it down? That responsibility that my father had to know Torah and to remember the Torah and to pass it on to that generation was part of his responsibility, but also part of his deep love that he had to Torah. Which brings me really to the idea of Avata Torah. The Rambam says in, that the mitzvah of loving Dosh Baruch Hu is making him loved by others. My father loved Torah, but he really made others love Torah as well. <coughs> His love to Torah was so simple. I, I tell people that when I was a kid, when I was cleaning up, at some point my parents asked me to clean their bedroom, and I moved their beds, and I found a chubas of the Rajba under the bed on the floor. You know, you move a bed, you find a newspaper. Under my father's bed, there was a Shubha Sarashba. 
lying there because he was in bed reading Shiva Sarashva and it fell out of his hand under the bed. That was just normal. I told people that um, on Purim, on Purim, uh, Purim morning, my father turns to me and says, 30 days before Pesach, the minute I get to learn Pesach, today Purim, 30 days, let's learn. And we open them in Chaschinuch on Purim morning. And some guys came in and they thought, he said something about briskers being crazy uh, on Purim learning in Chaschinuch. But that was my father. It was so simple to him to always be learning and to love learning. It was part of his life, it was part of who he was. And I say that because, uh, in another context, which is after I got down from the Hespid, I suddenly, of course, said to myself, oh, I didn't say this, I didn't say this, I didn't say that. And one of my father's Talmidot, my father had Talmidim and Talmidot, <clears throat> my father's Talmidot came over and said to me, you know, you really didn't mention that your father was a pioneer in teaching women Torah. I said, oh, you're the last person I want to get upset. So I have to really think to myself, why, why is that? So of course I said, first of all, I said, well, I'm sorry, I, was, I wasn't thinking right, I was very emotional about everything. But I said, if I want to try to find any rationale, why did you not mention that? I, I explained because my father, it wasn't, it wasn't, it, it wasn't a, a thing that he had to do to prove any, to anyone. He taught Torah to everyone, to women, to men, and he taught it the same way. He didn't, he didn't give a shir differently if he gave a shir to women or to men or to children or to older people. He gave a shir the same way to everyone. He wasn't making any statements by teaching women Torah in the depth that he did. It was natural for him, it was normal for him. You want to learn? Bakashat, let's learn Torah. He taught women Gemara, he taught women Rishonim, he taught women the same way he would teach men. It wasn't any statement that he was coming out to say, oh look, I'm going to teach women because of a certain reason. It was just simple to him, it was just normal for him to be able to teach Torah in that way. My father was very normal. We called him the normal rabbi. Rabbi Mital, at the time, before, right before he died, Rabbi Mital came to Gush and gave, participated. My father's, uh, my father left the yeshiva, they made a little party for him. And one of Rabbi Mital's last uh, appearances in, in Haaretz Sion, Rabbi Mital spoke about how, how he loved my father because he was so normal. And how Ramital said that he, that he felt that there were so many rabbis, but so, many, so few of them out there were normal. He said, Rav Tavori, I have no money. Who have no money? At the time, who have no money? They spoke about, about how he, 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 um, he really was felt, he, he, people felt that he was a, uh, you could talk to him, you could, you could approach him, you could, you could laugh with him, you could discuss with him sports, you could discuss with him what's happening in the world. My father had a sense of humor. He had a wonderful sense of humor. Uh, two stories about a sense of humor came up in the, in the, in the Shiva that I think show more about a sense of humor uh, about my father. One story was told to us by Shalaka. Shalaka is my father's helper from Sri Lanka, that really great Sadiq who had been with my father for many years. Um, right before my father, uh, at the point when he was still able to speak, to communicate, he had people coming over the house to have a shear. <clears throat> so he once told Shalaka, the Sri Lankan, he said to him, Shalaka, before, uh, I'm about to have people come in for a shear. Um, I'm putting a book here in my library. When I need the book, I'll ask you to bring it in for me. My father's giving a shear. No, the shear, he says, ooh, this is an important Shagasari in this sugya. Shalaka, get me the Shagasari. Look. <laughs> 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 He said, he knows where your shop is at? He goes in the study and brings it back. Of course, you know, we're always far apart. I don't understand. Another story that came up in the Shiva, which shows also my father's connection, not only to Shiva boys, Shiva girls, but also to Balabatim. Elliot mentioned before about my father. It becoming becoming a being a rabbi of, of a community and, and, and somehow connecting to Balabatim, uh, one of the women of Alon Shvud came to us in the Shiva. She said to us a wonderful story. We, we never heard it before. She said that years ago, her, her, one of her parents passed away. And uh, she wanted to ask my father a simple question, when is she allowed to get a haircut? So the halacha is, is that we wait till one of your friends tells you off. Gorim bochavirah. So my father, she says, started discussing with her the, the halachot, the idea. He actually started discussing with her the idea that 
she doesn't cover your hair, so maybe there will be a difference of how she cares about her hair, doesn't care about her hair. He started learning the, the, learning the sugya with her about, about what would be the right to answer for her. And then he said, he said but really, um, when someone tells you off, that's when you uh, are supposed to get a haircut. And she said that uh, a day later, she was jogging in a lunch foot. And she, she made it to the butka, you know, where the shomer is, at the, uh, the lunch foot. And there were a bunch of yeshiva guys there waiting for a hitch, for a ride, to leave a lunch foot. And she was standing there when she, as she was jogging, and suddenly my father drove by, and he opens the window, and he looks at her and he says, What is wrong with you? You look terrible! <laughs> it's time to get a haircut. Take, take care of yourself a little bit. You, your hair looks just terrible. Do something about it and drive them. <laughs> All these Shiva boards were standing. <laughs> That was my Abba, um, a man who loved Torah, who taught Torah, but was very strongly uh, here in this earth, part of, part of us, part of the community, could relate to, to, to everyone. Oh, I want to end with one last thought, which I mentioned just a few weeks ago. The, the Mara talks to us in two different places about Remembering the Mikdash. We talk about Azechel HaMikdash and we talk about Azechel HaChurban. The Gemara talks in Balabatra about certain customs that we have to, to remember the Mikdash. Some people have a new custom of leaving part of their wall unfinished, uh, putting ashes on the head of a Chatan at a wedding. But the Gemara Masechet Sukkah also talks about certain customs that we do to remember the Mikdash, like shaking Lulav all seven days, like having Simchapet Shoeva, two Gemarot that talk about how to remember the Mikdash, but the Gemara brings two different sukim, two different sources to teach us of these customs. And Rabbi Soloveitchik, in one of his works on Masechet Sukkah, <coughs> questions why the separation? Why do we have two sukim and two halachot? And the answer he gives is a, is a very simple answer, but I think so true about how we commemorate the loss of the Mikdash. There are two ways to commemorate the Mikdash. One is, we sit, we cry. We feel the pain that we have no midrash. We do certain acts to remember that we're missing something in our lives. On the other hand, sometimes we act in a way to remember the mikdash, not in a sad way, but in a happy way. Right? When we shake lulav, no one's crying. When we dance, we're not crying, we're celebrating that there was a mikdash and that we used to carry the lulav there. There's actually an interesting discussion about, I just mentioned that the discussion in the, because my father wanted me to, to discuss this right now. The Baal Amor and then the Psachim discusses about why we don't say Yashechiyanu on Sifirat HaOmer. And the Baal Amor says it's because it's Zechil Amidash. And the Rosh says that's not so clear because it's not Zechil Amidash that's sad, it's, it's a happy Zechil Amidash, right? According to what we just said now, it's not so clear what kind of Zechil Amidash is. However, we have a Zechil Achorban and we have a Zechil Amidash. Two ways to commemorate the loss of the Amidash. When I learned this sugya not long ago, I realized that this is true also about how we commemorate people that we love. Sometimes we commemorate people that we love by sitting shiva, by crying, by missing that person, and by acting in a certain way that really brings us tears and, and, and pain that we're missing the person that we love so much. But there's also a side of zechir Migdash. There's also a side of celebrating that person's life in a way that we remember him fondly, with a smile on our faces, and we celebrate who they are. In this transition right now, in the past few weeks from Shiva, Shloshim, and into the year, I really feel that we are moving from Azechel HaChurban to Azechel HaMikdash. When we are learning and teaching my father's Torah, when people come to me and quote my father's Torah, and people say to me, I was listening to him online, I, I was walking along Shavuot, and suddenly I hear someone running past me totally randomly, and I hear my father on the tape as he's running by, jogging in a lone shot in the middle of the night. When I hear people reading the Torah of my father, learning the Torah of my father, quoting him, and the letters that are pouring in, and people mention how much he had an impact on their, on their lives, and how much Torah he taught them, and how he continues to teach them Torah, I think we are moving from a zecher la to a zecher la mikdash. We are remembering him with great, great love, 
and affection with sometimes not only tears in our eyes, but also smiles as we remember my father in a very special way of what kind of person he was. Thank you all for coming. Rabbi Ad and Rabbi Sachs, thank you both for being so inspirational uh, this evening. That's uh, in part uh, one of the reasons we as the Ki, ki Love, Alexion, and uh, the Alexion family wanted to have uh, this evening's uh, Hespedim was to uh, bring you some uh, nechama and comfort and consolation. But in actual fact, what you've done is uh, consoled us that's, uh, with your recollections of your father. That's, it was a little bit uh, challenging whenever you arrange. Uh, an evening in Hespadian with three speakers, you always slightly run the risk that the three people are going to say the same thing. Because in actual fact, what we've had this evening is three people focused, perhaps unintentionally, um, but on the three main facets of your father's uh, personality, and which really uh, summed him up and pays tribute to him in the most beautiful way. Elliot spoke about him and the contribution that he made uh, to our Kihila. Rabbi Sachs uh, taught Torah in his memory, uh, which was, of course, the centre stone of uh, Rav Tabori's life. And uh, you shared with us uh, really what his personality was and the warm uh, person that we all, uh, we all remember. And indeed, <coughs> that's uh, Chazal talk about Sichat Chulin Shel Chachamin. That was really what uh, I remember most about uh, your father. There wasn't really any Sichat Chulin, because whenever you had this Sichat Chulin conversation with him, it's always morphed into a shear as well. You learnt, uh, you learnt Torah from him, a shita would come up uh, that he'd share with you, etc., etc. So it's uh, so be very inspirational for all of us, and uh, we hope uh, that it's inspirational for you and for your family. And you get Nechama. We thank you for joining us this evening. We thank Rabbi Sachs for joining us this evening. We thank everybody for uh, being here, paying tribute to Rav Tabori, and the best thing we know as a community that we can do in his memory is to perpetuate his uh, legacy and to carry on uh, learning the Torah that he valued so much.